What is the gospel? That's the question we're trying to answer in the series, or at least round out. And maybe you know the answer to that question. Maybe you're just beginning to formulate an answer. Maybe you're still not sure how to answer that. But here's the thing. If you think you know the gospel and you've got that figured out, you've already missed the point. We can never plumb the depths of the gospel. The gospel is a shorthand way of referring to the good news about Jesus Christ, or as Luke says in his gospel, it is good news of great joy for all people. And so our goal in this series hasn't just been to increase our knowledge about the gospel or our understanding of the gospel, but we want to get a hold of that joy of the gospel. We want to see our delight in the gospel increase as we're reminded again and again, there is always more to fix our eyes upon. There is always more to discover about this good news and how truly good it is. And so we've been looking at the second chapter of Ephesians, and the first four sermons of this series are looking at just the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2, and we've been trying to look at the gospel from different angles each week. In the first week, we looked about at how the gospel is good news about what we've been saved from. If we don't actually look at what our lives were like outside of God, how dire the human condition was, the good news of the gospel never really makes sense. At best, it'll be muddied or distorted, or at worst, it'll just seem useless. And so we looked at that, and we looked at the bad news and how God has saved us and made us alive. In the second week, we took another angle. We looked at how the gospel is also good news about what we've been saved by. We've been saved by God's immeasurable grace. God in his mercy and his love for us saved us and did everything necessary to bring us into his loving, uh, gracious presence. There's nothing we could do to earn it. There's nothing we could do to deserve it. It is an act of his love on display for the whole world and faith opens us up to that reality. So that's what we've looked at so far. And if you've missed those first sermons, I'd encourage you to listen to them because we're, we're kind of building upon each sermon and there's aspects of the text today that you might be curious about and wonder why I didn't address and it's because I addressed them in those first sermons. Today, the angle we're going to take is slightly different. I want to look at how the gospel is good news about what we're saved into because we're saved into union with Christ and we're going to look at this in three ways. We'll look at union, separation, and identity. So if you have a Bible, it's obviously useless because you've memorized this chapter. But if you haven't memorized this chapter, we'll be in the second chapter of Ephesians, uh, looking at verses 4 through 10. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, please take one of our gray Bibles home with you, and everything will be on the screen behind me. The Apostle Paul writes this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's begin with union. I want you to imagine some of your closest friendships, maybe your best friendships, a bromance or something like that. But I've found, I don't know about you, that the truest mark of a friend is when I can be in silence with them. 
and not feel my skin crawl and feel uncomfortable and feel like I have to fill the silence with endless chatter. I found the truest mark of a friendship is when you can simply be with someone without any agenda. When you call them up, you don't have to have a reason for wanting to be together other than being together. And I hope you have friends like that, where you can enjoy the silence and where you can take in the scenery, where you can just bask in each other's presence. And this kind of friendship unites you to the other person and it's, it's necessary to the human experience because we find out who we are in relationship to others. When we can simply be with someone and they cherish us and they receive us and they accept us and they acknowledge us in our faults and in our weaknesses and in our strengths and in our, in our beauty and they love us all the same, it says something about us and we carry that with us. That's why friendship matters so much. There's something that flows out of union that begins to define who we are. And in this passage, there's a little phrase tucked away that's so easy to overlook, and yet it is so foundational to the gospel that if we were to miss it and not understand it, we would miss the gospel and fail to understand the gospel. So what is the phrase? With Christ and in Christ. With Christ and in Christ. These two little words, in Christ, scholars say it is such an important motif in Scripture that to miss it is to miss the entire Christian message. It's to miss the heart of what Jesus came to do. Who knew? Who knew two little words could be so important? But if you look at our passage again, we've been made alive together with Christ. We're raised up with him. We're seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. God has shown the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And finally, we're created in Christ, with Christ, with Christ, with Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Six times in this little passage and 151 times in all of Paul's letters. This is no small theme. These are the two words that capture and summarize the entire point of the gospel. The point of salvation is not that we're saved, as good as that is. The point of salvation is that we're brought back into loving union with God. The gift of salvation is God himself and sharing in his very life with Christ and in Christ. The New Testament scholar Timothy Gombus, which can we just stop and appreciate that last name, Gombus, puts it like this. The people of God are not merely loved by God or saved by God. We're brought into God. God has done something outrageous to us, bringing us into Christ. So what exactly is this union with God, this union with Christ? It's this. It means that Christ is in you and you are in him. In other words, the very life of God dwells in you and your life dwells in the very life of God. And this is only possible because of everything that Jesus Christ has done for us. Again, in our passage, it says that God has made us alive. God has raised us up. God has seated us in heavenly places. But all of these words articulate the story of Jesus. Jesus Christ was born into the world. And first he suffered death on the cross. And then he was made alive. And he was raised up. And now he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. So all of these verbs, made alive, raised up, Seated, they describe the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. They're the words of the gospel. And so they first and foremost describe every single thing that Jesus Christ did. 
But then there's all these words added to them. With him. With him. With him. In him. In him. In him. So if we're united to Christ through faith, all the benefits of what he has done become ours as we become his. Do you see that? Because salvation is not something we extract from God. It's something we receive in God, in Christ. And so you can't be made alive. You can't experience this death to life resurrection. You can't be raised up and seated with God. You can't even be in the presence of God if you're apart from Christ. You can only stand before your maker in Christ and experience all his benefits in Christ. Outside of Christ, there is no benefit. And so what's the implication of this? What does this mean for us practically that we're with Christ or we're in Christ? If our healthiest relationships give us a sense of who we are, if the unions we're in give us a sense of who we are, this is only amplified in our relationship with Jesus. When our lives are united to him, we discover who we truly are. In the first chapter of this letter, Paul says, God has blessed us in the beloved, capital B, in the beloved. So Christ's own belovedness before God the Father becomes ours. And we experience every spiritual blessing that God has to offer because we're in Christ and we share in his life. So the way that the Father has loved the Son, Jesus says, I have loved you. We receive the exact same status and privilege and love. And this is hinted at when Paul says, we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We sit where Christ sits. Think about that. I mean, really, we sit where Jesus Christ sits. Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven. He is sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He is being worshipped by a multitude of the saints who are now in heaven and with angels and archangels as we proclaim over communion every Sunday. That is where Jesus sits, at the throne of God, and we're seated with him. We're seated in the very throne room of God with Christ. No wonder the author of the Hebrew, Hebrew says, uh, hey, you can draw near to God with boldness and confidence because you're with Christ, you're in Christ, and it's the throne of grace. And so you can make your petitions and requests to God because you have direct access into the highest place of privilege that you could possibly have in all of the universe because your life is hid in Christ. You're with him, you're in him. We have no inherent right to be there, but we can stand there because he brings us there. So, of course, when we speak of this, when we speak of our union with Christ, we're speaking of a mystery. In another letter, Paul calls this a glorious mystery that Christ dwells in us. A glorious mystery. But it's not just a mystery. It's our mystery. It's our mystery. When you're in Christ, you can know he dwells in you. It might be through prayer or silence or solitude or retreat, but it might be walking with him in the Monday, everyday activities. You can know Christ in the simplest silence and prayer. You can know he's in you. You can know this in your everyday life and beyond because Christ is in us if in fact you believe in him and he's dwelling richly in us. But this is why the author and spiritual writer Brennan Manning once said, the most radical demand of the Christian faith lies in summoning the courage to say yes to the present risenness of Christ. The most radical demand of you is to say yes to this union because it changes everything about our lives. Because it says that Christ doesn't 
want to remain on the periphery of our life. He doesn't just want to impart some nice teachings for us. He doesn't want you to just be sort of a Christian. He wants you to be unified with him and be united in him so that his very life is your own life. And so having considered this union, I want to talk about some of the ways we separate ourselves from this union. Although you may have not heard a lot of emphasis on this phrase, with Christ and in Christ, hopefully you heard people speak or you even speak of your relationship with Jesus or your relationship with God. You talk about an intimate knowing. It's the same way of talking about with Christ and being in Christ. And it seems, right, like such an obvious point to make at some level. Like the, the point of Christianity is Jesus. That's the Sunday school answer. Any question, you can say Jesus, and it's probably the right answer. And yet there's so many ways we separate Christ out of Christianity. We can do it explicitly. Maybe you read the books on theology, you've become familiar with the teachings of Jesus, the works of Jesus, everything he has done. You can wax eloquent, but you're not enamored with Jesus himself. He's just a historical figure, one that you can learn a great deal from, but nothing more than that. He was a teacher, a good man, a prophet perhaps, an exaggeration of his disciples' imagination, but nevertheless, you still try to benefit from his example. You try to benefit from his teachings. You try to integrate them into his life, but you have removed his teachings from union with him because you believe he's like any other historical figure. You can learn about him, but you can't actually know him. That's an obvious, explicit way that we might separate Christ from Christianity. But we can do this implicitly as well. And you might be doing it without being aware. So I want you to close your eyes. Don't worry, it's not going to get weird. Close your eyes. And I want you to imagine the scene with me. I want you to imagine you're in heaven. You've arrived in eternity. And all of your dead loved ones are resurrected and restored to the very best versions of themselves And there they are waiting for you and welcoming you with joy on their faces. Sin has been eradicated. People do no wrong because evil has been undone. True and full justice has been dealt to reverse all the tragedies of the earth. Death has been eliminated and no suffering and tears exist anymore. And as you imagine what this might be like, take note of the warmth you might be feeling, the elation, the excitement, the hope. And if you could have this, if you could have heaven's endless joy and the world's greatest delicacies, endless days of love and delight, just as you've now imagined, if you could have it all, heaven and eternal life, but Jesus is nowhere to be found, would you still want it? can open your eyes. Did the warmth of the vision dissipate for you in light of Christ's absence? And if not, if you're inclined to say, actually, this vision of heaven would be great, do you see? You've reduced the message of Christianity down to paradise gained. You might come to God, but it's because you want eternal life. You want eternity, but you're not coming to God because the reward is union with him. And so you're using God as a means to your end. God is your means and your end is internal life. You want the gift, you don't want the giver. 
You want the benefits, you don't want the benefactor. And this has become a common problem sometimes in the way people articulate the gospel. They say, do you want heaven? Do you want eternal life? And people say yes. But that's mistaking the gifts and the rewards for the actual benefit of the gospel. You come to Jesus Christ because you gain God. You gain loving union with the Father and you get to spend eternal life and endless days delighting in who God is as he delights in who you are. And so I want to take a closer look at some of the ways we separate the gifts and the benefits of the gospel from the gospel. Some of the ways we extract Christ from our faith without even realizing it because I think we're prone to do it. Let's say you want peace. Good prayer request, peace. And maybe something's going on in your life. Maybe you're struggling with anxiety or a sense of insecurity or, or instability or you're worried about the future. And so you pray for peace. You pray, God, grant me peace. But what are you actually asking? If God resolved whatever was causing you anxiety, if he changed whatever circumstances were bothering you that you want changed, if he imparted some sort of internal supernatural comfort, if you received the peace you asked for, would that be enough? Would you be satisfied? Would you be content to have peace from God, but not peace derived in God? You see, if we think about the language of the Psalms, it helps, helps us see what I'm talking about here. The psalmists describe God as our rock, as our refuge, as our shelter, as our, 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 our ever-present foundation. God himself is our peace. In other words, he gives us so much more than whatever we're searching for. He gives us himself. And so in asking for peace, hopefully we're actually praying, Lord, there is no peace outside of you. And so you might change what's going on around me. You might change what's in me. But if you do not give me yourself, I will never have any true and lasting peace. So if you're praying for peace and you're saying, God, give me yourself because you are my peace. And if I have you, I have what I need no matter what come, hell or high water. Now, if you're praying that, great. But so often, we say, no, I want peace. I want this abstract peace that you'll, you'll give to me and I'll feel better so I can go on with my life. We want the gifts, not the giver. But when we desire eternity, when we desire peace, when we desire any of the benefits of the gospel, whatever they may be, they're supposed to be a means, not an end. It's a means that should bring us to God. And so if you want peace, if you want joy, if you want contentment, this desire is supposed to bring you to God and help you see that only he can actually be what you're searching for. Now, I see some of your faces. You might be thinking, oh, come on. Like, this is just semantics. But it's not. If we don't have clarity around this, the risk is that you miss God entirely. You get caught up on all the things that God can do for you and benefit you and give to you, but you never actually get to know him. You use him as a means to your end. So if you'll bear with me, let me give you one more analogy. Marriage is a union between a husband and a wife in which they become one. But the process of becoming one is a lifelong process of relearning how to live. You get a new identity. You have to learn to think in terms of we rather than I. And I'm looking at the newlyweds right now, okay? We rather than I. And that takes time. But that's the goal of marriage, a new union in which two become one. But let's say you get married simply for the benefit of having sex. Now, hopefully no one would ever give you that advice at St. Peter's Fireside, but if they did, disregard it. But let's say you did. Let's say you got married because you just 
want to have sex. Now, all of us are appalled on some level because it's so dehumanizing. It reduces your spouse down to the benefits they can give you. But it's the same if you get married because you actually just want to have children. Or you get married because uh, so-and-so is a baller and you want to be rich and you want some bling. Like if you're getting married for the benefits of what the person can give to you or add to your life or what the hope of what dreams might come true through that person, but not because of you're with that person, you're separating the gift of marriage from actually being married. That's why the vows are always centered around the couple. That's why it's a non-negotiable. If I officiate your wedding, you're using the classic vows. Sorry. Because they help you see for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for benefit or no benefit, when it's great or when it's terrible. The fundamental goal of this marriage is union, growing in love of one another, two becoming one, I becoming we. I hope that helps you see. But if you go to God because of all the things he can add to your life, New life, joy, comfort, peace. If you go to God because he might be answering prayers, if you go to God for all of the benefits and all of the gifts, but you're not actually going to him because he's the giver and he's the source of your joy and he is the object of your delight and he is the one you want to be with for all of eternity, you've missed the point of salvation. We're not just saved so that our lives can get a little bit better. We are saved into loving union with Christ. God dwells in us and we well in him. That is the fundamental point of the gospel. So having considered just some of the ways we hold that at arm's length or some of the ways we separate Christ out from our faith, I want to consider our identities. Because why is it that we can feel so comfortable approaching God for the benefits he gives, but not the joy of who he is? Why is it that we can accidentally fall into a pattern of of praying prayer requests where we're actually trying to extract something out of God, but not actually spend time dwelling with God and finding our peace and our comfort or our joy or whatever we're searching for in him? I was having coffee with someone recently, and that's where pastors spend Monday through Saturday, if you're wondering. And this, this person has many foster brothers. And he was sharing what that was like for him growing up, like 10 foster brothers. And I was so grateful for that because it's just such a different life experience than my own. I just loved learning about what that was like for him and what it's still like for him. Uh, And then he started sharing his heart about one of his brothers in particular. And this brother has been with his family uh, for 10 years now. So from the age of 10 to the present. I think he's 19, maybe 20. Uh, And then this brother, he'll even say, I won the lottery with this family. This family has been good to me. They've been kind to me. They have treated me as a son. I am, I am one of theirs. And he's seen their goodness time and time again. It hasn't been without struggle. It hasn't been without difficulty. But this, this foster brother sees the goodness of the family, sees that the family loves him, and he's been loving in return. And yet, he still resists being fully in the family. He's there. He knows the goodness. He has gratitude for the opportunity, and yet he still holds part of himself back. There's this intentional distance. And it grieves my friend, because he loves his brother. He sees him as a brother. He just wants to embrace him as a brother. And yet, at the same time, he respects his brother, and he understands why it's hard for his brother, because it's a big ask. It's one thing to receive all these good things. It's another thing to say, I'm going to find my identity in this family now. 
I'm going to leave behind my, my pain and my story and, and what's defined me up until this point and begin to find my identity entirely of these people. This is a huge ask, that this would be his family now. Think once again about what Brennan Manning said. It takes courage to say yes to union with Christ and a life centered upon his present risenness. Because if we say yes, we're giving ourselves away. And it's a massive change in our self-understanding. It's nothing short of death and new life because we have to acknowledge that outside of him, we were dead. We had no life in ourselves. We were heading to eternal separation from God, but he died and he's made us alive. And if that's true, we don't have life in ourselves. It's his life. The life we now live is the life in Christ. I in him and he in me. And it takes courage to lay aside our cynicism and our disbelief about this. It takes courage to acknowledge all the different ways we unintentionally or intentionally keep Christ at the distance that we find appropriate rather than this deep, loving union. And the reason we try to remain as separated from Christ as we can is similar to my friend's brother. Who will I be if I accept this new family, this new union? What becomes of me and my story? And while many of us are not foster children struggling with very real and very valid challenges, we do struggle in very real ways to give ourselves to God fully to this union and to be defined fully by this union and not defined by ourselves. And in part, it's because we don't want to lose ourselves. We don't know who we'll become. Our lives, they might not be perfect, but at least we know them. At least there are lives, there are problems. It's our story and sharing that with someone, let alone giving ourselves fully to someone, that is risky. That's a big ask because it fundamentally changes the way we see ourselves and the way we live in the world. But there's still one more reason, I think, well, two more, but one more reason first, that we, we hold back, that we keep Christ at a safe distance. Pain. Pain. Human existence is painful. It's experientially painful. It's existentially painful. Uh, we experience loss, failure, and regret. We carry heartache and disappointment. We accrue tiredness and fatigue. And we, we touch on existential angst, this fear of death, this awareness of our finitude. And even on the best days, most of us don't really want to confront our pain. We know it's there, it's, it's, it's just there, and so we push it away. And we'd rather not go there. And in fact, this experience of pain, whether it's our own pain or the pain we see in people around us, we say, how could we trust in a God who allows us to carry such pain and suffering? How could I invite a God in who's done nothing but allow this in my life? Why doesn't he just fix it? Why doesn't he just cure it? How can I be one with him when he lets this happen to me? I met with someone recently who has a degenerative muscle disease. And she was telling me about the pain of this loss over the past 20 years and the pain that she's had to go through and cope with. And she told me some of the ways she's managed. And she went through a season where she had profound doubt about God. Where is he? 
Why doesn't he just heal her? That would be a miraculous story. God heals her. People can see it and they'll fall down on their faces and acknowledge that God is real. That's the story we want. That's the story we see at scripture from time to time. Why doesn't God just heal this disease? But instead, she's had to cope and struggle and carry this pain with her in her body each and every single day. And she told me a story about it. She uh, used to be able to go to some stairs in our neighborhood, and they zigzag much like the stairs at Robson Square. And she knew the number. There was 204 stairs going up and 204 stairs going down, but there was a railing, and so it made it safe for her to get some exercise at these stairs. And so she used to go up 10 times, up and down, 10 times. It was great form of exercise. And one time she's doing it and midway her body is aching and she's not sure she can do it anymore. And she's thinking about the future of how this isn't even keeping the disease at bay. It's just going to get worse. And God, if you love me, where are you? How is this love? How is this love that I have to suffer up these stairs and I have to suffer through my life? How are you a loving God? And then it started to rain. And it was the sort of downpour where you don't want to be stuck outside. And there she is in the middle of the stairs with a disease that doesn't allow her to rush out of the rain. And so she gets soaked. Insult to injury. Except it wasn't. Because suddenly she said each raindrop was as if God was saying to her, I love you. And she saw the cynicism on my face and she said, I know it sounds cheesy, but I can't explain it to you other than this, that in that moment, God used his creation to reveal his love for me. Drop, I love you. Drop, drop, I love you. I love you. And she just stood there and got soaked in the rain, soaked in the reminder that God loves her, and that God is with her, even in her pain. He's with her even in the pain. If we come to God only for the benefits, we're going to say, heal me, make me whole. And if he doesn't, if he doesn't heal us, if we don't get made whole on the timeline we were hoping, we might run away from God. We might not see the benefit of God. What use is God? He doesn't make life any better. Or our doubt might gnaw away at our faith to the point that we end up in disbelief. But the better story, the good news, is that God is with us in our pain. That tender area that all of us carry that makes us prone to distrust God and keep, us, keep him at arm's length, that is precisely where God wants to meet us. God never works around pain. He always works through pain. Jesus didn't avoid the cross and the suffering of the cross because it's through the cross that he brought our redemption. And because of this, we can trust God to be united in our deepest pain. Because there he embraces us, there he loves us, there he shows us that he is with us and he always does so in ways that we can comprehend. For some of us, it might be through the ongoing presence of a friend who just demonstrates the love and kindness to, of God to you again and again without feeling. It might be through prayer, it might be through silence or solitude. It might be out in nature and God just reveals his goodness to you. It might be some mystical experience you have with the Holy Spirit. But what this passage shows us is that God's desire for us is to know that we are seated with his son and that we are beloved and that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, not even 
our ultimate death, because when we die, that will just be the beginning. And Christ has made us one with him. And to describe this, he calls us friends. We're united to Christ as if we're friends. To describe us, he calls us his bride. We're united to him as if it's a marriage. The goal of being united to Christ then is to lay down thinking in terms of I and begin to live in terms of we. Christ in me and I in him. This is what we gain through the gospel. And Christ loved us so much that he became united in our sin. He bore our sin. The stuff that actually makes us resist God more. Christ bore that in his body on the tree and washed us clean so that we could be seated in the very presence of God. That's what he has for us. That's what he did for us. And what we gain is God. And so the gospel is good news about gaining God. The gospel is good news about being saved into Christ. Do not settle for the gifts and the benefits as good as they are. Because God answers prayer as he wills. But he has given you his son. And he will dwell richly in you if you have the courage to open your life to him. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you've never experienced this union with Christ, God and you and you and him. It can be yours. It's by grace you've been saved. God has done everything needed for you to be forgiven and reconciled and brought into his loving presence. All you have to do is have the courage to open your hands and say yes. But maybe you've been following Jesus for a while and you've forgotten this reality or you've gotten sidetracked by things that have distracted you or maybe he just feels far away. But sometimes I find that when Christ feels far away, what you actually need to do is look closer, not further. Perhaps he's actually drawn even closer to you rather than further away from you. And you've been looking out here and he's come closer to that very center of you and he wants you to look closer to see that he really does dwell richly in you in every part of you. And maybe there's a part of you that you've been holding away from God. You've been trying to keep away at arm's length and Christ is waiting and inviting you to see that he's been with you all along. If we say yes to him, the good news of the gospel is not that we one day will live forever. The good news of the gospel is that God dwells in us now. And we get to walk with him now, all of our days and through all of eternity. We can lay down living as I and start living as we because we've been united with Christ.